Genesis chapter 2 in your Bibles this morning. Genesis chapter 2. Last week I preached to a church in Ireland. I was supposed to be there. <laughs> I had the ticket and all that. And then uh, they had a COVID outbreak. Bummer. And so uh, I had to miss the Irish cream cakes and tea and coffee and all that. But at any rate, we still had our meeting uh, over Zoom. That was interesting. A little bit different than live stream because they had everyone leave their, leave their video screens on. They obviously muted all the homes, otherwise I'd hear all the dogs barking and everything else. But uh, at any rate, I had the gallery of all the faces there, just like in a service like this. So it was really neat. And I uh, had a special time with them. Uh, but good to be with you here today. I enjoyed the music today. Uh, already in the first service and again in this hour. You know, the song on higher ground. Maybe as we come into this new year, there's that yearning in your heart <laughs> for God to bring you to that higher ground. Uh, the music of that song was written by Jonathan Hamilton, the son of uh, Ron and Shelley, and uh, beautiful words there that uh, have been put to that. Uh, but perhaps there's that yearning in your heart. As we come into a new year, there's often a desire to see uh, God move afresh in your life. Coming off of 2021 and 2020, um, many people are discouraged. The, uh, I was reading the other day the statistics on suicide are just skyrocketed. Uh, statistics on depression, even more so, uh, just escalated uh, incredible uh, uh, despair and hopelessness that many people in our world find themselves right now. But friend, it doesn't have to be that way. There's hope. Uh, we sang in the first song, Oh God, our uh, help in ages past, our hope for years to come. So as we come into this new year, let's look at this subject of hope. We want to do it in an unusual text. It's actually uh, a backdrop of difficulty that uh, God brought hope out of. So let's read our text this morning, uh, Genesis chapter 2. By the way, I, uh, the announcement there about Matt Galvin, I wanted to mention this before I forget. I've known Matt since he was in high school. He is uh, being used to the Lord. I'm thrilled. He definitely has the gift of preaching, the gift of the evangelist, and I am thrilled that he's coming to Ann Arbor Baptist Church. And uh, actually, I'll get to catch that Wednesday night before we head out to California. I'll be in St. Louis next week uh, over the weekend. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm glad that he's coming. So back to our text, Genesis chapter 2. And I want us to look at verse 15 through 17. The inspired word of God says, And the Lord, God, took the man. That's Adam. That's what Adam means, the man, and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it. That means to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. This is where there's free will. God says, Thou mayest freely eat. All of them but this one. In other words, you have a choice. And that is where the free will comes from. It's right there in that text. And then the end of verse 17 says, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, from that one tree that was prohibited, thou shalt surely die. That's a fascinating phrase because underneath it, uh, uh, the awkward literal Hebrew is saying, In dying, you will die. So what does that mean? It's more than just you'll die. In dying, you will die. Well, from that uh, 
it sets the stage for what we're going to look at this morning because as you read on in the story, and if you're familiar with the biblical account, and if you are reading your Bible through in a year and you're starting in Genesis, you just read this, Adam and Eve didn't make a wrong choice. The New Testament tells us Eve was deceived, Adam was full-blown disobedient. He knew full well what was going on, as the indication of the New Testament text. Eve was deceived, Adam was disobedient, and with that came the curse and all that goes with it, death, hell, and if that backdrop, and you can begin in chapter 3, God talks about hope. <laughs> ah, and the beginnings of the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer. And so I want us to see what brought this about, but let's focus on the hope part of it. The title of the message is The Threefold Hope. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we need you as we look at your word. Spirit of God, would you be our teacher? Lord, just open our eyes. Lord, thrill us with the hope that is found in Jesus. And Lord, not just future, but for what's available right now to radically impact our present lives. And so, Lord, open eyes. And the Lord, make specific personal application to every individual here. May we walk away with glad surrender, glad faith. And Lord, I plead the blood. Lord, protect us from Satan's attack. Lord Jesus, I claim the victory that you won at the throne when you said it is finished. May that be manifest now. So Lord, breathe on us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. In dying thou shalt die. Well, he did eat of that tree. But he didn't die on the spot. But death began. It took 930 years for Adam to die. Whoa. <laughs> Can you imagine living 900 years? I mean, 930 years. I mean, that's like long before the Magna Carta to today. <laughs> I mean, it's like, good night. I mean, can you imagine how many Nikes he went through? <laughs> I mean, he could go through every fret. I mean, Adidas, Reebok, you know, Pumas. That's what it was a big one when I was a kid. Uh, Vans are the biggie right now, you know. And so, I mean, I mean, he could go through them all. <laughs> he could enjoy them all, you know. 930 years. I mean, you know, who knows how many kids the guy had. Can you imagine having a brother that was 500 years older than you? <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, good grief. Uh, it's bad enough when they're just five years older, you, older than you and they act like they're the king. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it must have been very, very interesting. He lived a long time, almost a millennium. Hard for us to even fathom. But he died. It began when he said, In dying thou shalt die. Fascinating. I remember my first exposure to death in the sense of being close by a corpse. I was in the second grade. My father was pastoring in the inner city of Chicago at the time. We had a member in our church named George Mensick. I've told Mensick stories here before. He was a former member of Al Capone's gang and got converted. What a story. God greatly used him. Uh, but uh, I remember him well. But when he passed away, that was the first funeral service that I attended. And I remember my father uh, bringing me by the open casket before the service started. And that was the closest I had ever been to a dead body, a corpse. And I remember as a little kid, it, it kind of unnerved me, to be honest with you. It, was, it, it kind of spooked me a bit, uh, forgive the term. Uh, that's just where I was and my understanding at that time. A year or two later, we were watching the news at home. Some war was going on in some part of the world. I don't remember where. 
and they were showing video footage of the war as it happened. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a bunch of machine guns and stuff, it was swords. I forget where it was on the planet. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was watching people die as it happened. Uh, in our world today, uh, kids are pretty exposed to all sorts of bloodshed. Uh, but for me, that was a shock in the third or fourth grade. And especially because it was real. And again, it was very unnerving. But, you know, as you grow in the Lord, I got saved and, and began to grow in the Lord. Uh, death isn't what it uh, was then. The spooky part was taken away. I remember when my mom passed away in 1989. Uh, I was still on staff with my dad in Chicago, so we got the word. And uh, she had been in the hospital for uh, some weeks at that point. And I had just seen her the night before. And I uh, got word uh, that she had passed away, so we got there within minutes. Her body was still in the room had not taken it away yet, and uh, forgive this, but you'll understand, her, her body was still, it was still warm. I remember I put my, my hand on her sweet face, and, and her face was still warm. It was that close to her passing away. And all of the spook part of it was gone. Uh, she was with the Lord, and I knew it. But the reality is, death is real. Genesis 2.17 says, In dying, you will die. You see, there is a threefold death. See, there's like a progression of death. There's, there's, or maybe another way to say it is a several aspects to death. In dying, you will die. But with that backdrop of these aspects of death, this threefold death, that sets the stage, but God, through Jesus, provided a threefold hope. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And obviously, we must believe in Jesus to experience the threefold hope. Now, what do we mean when we say threefold hope? Well, let's look at the threefold death and see the contrast to the threefold hope uh, based on that and our time this morning. The most obvious, let's start right there, physical death. When we see in this phrase, thou shalt surely die, immediately, I remember as a kid reading this, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to drop dead. Well, that's not exactly what happened, but he did. 930 years later, uh, he finally did drop dead. Uh, physical death is what generally comes to our mind, and that is very, very real. With that, there is the hope of the resurrection. So there's the death, there's a physical death, and there's a hope of a, can I say, physical resurrection. Physical death is when the soul separates from your body. It's when the immaterial part of you separates from the material part of you. All of us live in a body. It's our carton. <laughs> it's our shell. Uh, but, uh, but the real us is inside of us. And when we die, the, there's, there's something missing because someone is missing. My father always encouraged people uh, when they lost a loved one to be sure to actually view the body. Why? Because they see that the person they loved is not there. They're gone. You can see. It's amazing. You know, there's that same face, you know, that, <laughs> their, their eyes, their ears, and all, but, but something's missing. Because someone's missing. They're gone. And it's helpful to recognize that and see it because it brings closure and it, it actually helps bring healing in the loss of a loved one. 
Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die. And that's your physical death. And after that, the judgment. See, there's still an existence beyond that physical death. But there is a physical death. Death is real. I remember in 1987, I think I was 15, my father took me with him on one of his trips to the Bible lands. And I remember we had been on the top of the Mount of Olives. You of course, read about uh, Mount Olivet in the scriptures. And uh, to uh, the west is the east side of the city of Jerusalem, the Golden Gate. And uh, we were coming down a pathway that they believe is the pathway uh, uh, that Jesus took on Palm Sunday. And now, today, there's actually a cemetery that's been put uh, off the side of that pathway. And there was a funeral taking place. It was a Jewish funeral. And never in my life, prior to that time or since, have I heard such weeping and agonizing wailing. Just despair. Now the Bible says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, that we as God's people sorrow. Obviously there's a sadness we miss the one who is no longer with us. But it says we sorrow not as others which have no hope. So let's get to the hope side of this. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. But there's a hope. There's a hope of the resurrection of the dead. In John chapter 11, we read the account where Lazarus, uh, and his sister Martha and Mary, that the family that uh, uh, Jesus uh, had been with and they'd hosted him before, well, Lazarus had died. And they had him already uh, in a tomb, a cave-like tomb, and, and uh, uh, so on. And there was a stone over the, uh, the entrance to that tomb. He'd been dead four days. And Jesus arrives. And Martha comes and talks with Jesus. And uh, they're all wishing, oh, if you had been here, you know, you could have uh, prevented this. And that's, that's when Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Those are great words. And then Jesus asks for Mary, and Martha goes, and they get Mary, and Mary quickly leaves her place and comes out to where Jesus is. He's there, not too far from the tomb of Lazarus. And many that were with Mary came with her, and now they're weeping and they're wailing, and there's this commotion, there is this scene of agony. And we read those simple words, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Every teenager knows that because on a quiz for teens, they can always remember that one. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. But you know, he did weep. The human Jesus felt the pain of that moment. Knowing full well he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth in just a few seconds. But he knew they were in agony. And for some of them who did not yet know him, because we read that many believed on him through this event, so there were those there that had hopelessness. And Jesus wept. He felt their pain. He still does. And of course, Jesus said, "Put roll that stone away. <laughs> Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And uh, he was resurrected. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man, that's Adam, came death through sin, by man, that's Jesus, 
came also the resurrection of the dead. Through the finished work, the cross, and his own resurrection being the firstborn from the dead, opening the way for those who believe on him to follow in that resurrection. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Friend, if you know Jesus, yes, uh, if we die before the rapture, these bodies are going to be put back in the ground. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. But these bodies are going to be resurrected. God knows how to regather the molecules that go back to dust and even those that are burned, even those that were burned at the stake during the Spanish Inquisition and their ashes flew all over the Europe, God knows how to regather the molecules. <laughs> and these bodies will be resurrected. They will become glorified bodies. Corinthians tells us that mortality will put on immortality. These very clay bodies are going to change. They're gonna, uh, they are going to be glorified. They're going to become eternal. Wow. You know, I have glasses. Many of you have glasses. We're not going to have glasses. I know right now glasses are fashionable, but hey, <laughs> uh, sometimes they're a pain because, you know, I got some new ones last summer and then they got scratched in two months. Oh, bummer. Now there's this little line right here where my eye sees, you know. <laughs> but we're not going to have glasses. All the aches and pains. I remember when I was an assistant pastor, uh, something happened to my back where I couldn't turn my neck. So to you know, to look that way, I had to turn my body, you know, and uh, uh, it was really awkward, and so I, uh, I went to a chiropractor, he was actually in our church, and so he's working me over, you know, and he, I said, hey, what caused this? He said, your job. <laughs> I wasn't even the pastor. <laughs> in other words, stress. So all these years, I have a barometer of when stress has hit me, I can feel it right there. <laughs> You know, all those aches and pains are going to be gone. Friends, these bodies are going to be resurrected. When my mother passed away in 1989, my father, of course, grieved, but knowing, obviously, that she would, uh, was, was, was with the Lord, that he'd see her again, he said what really blessed him was the truth of the resurrection. It's true. It's not just wishful thinking. We will see these loved ones again. See, the resurrection, there's hope. And obviously, some will meet the Lord in the air in the rapture. So there's physical death and the hope of the resurrection, but there's a second part of this I want us to see. There is spiritual death. What is that? And the hope of regeneration. So this is a different truth. Spiritual death is very different than physical death. Spiritual death is the separation of your human spirit which is the real you, from the life of God. When we're born, physically, we're born dead, spiritually. Strange, isn't it? Born dead. Kind of an oxymoron. Uh, but in our spirits, we're separated from the life of God. The old writers back in the 1600s uh, worded it this way, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden... The spirit that had been in communion, connection, relationship with God was severed in that relationship. See, in dying thou shalt die. This happened immediately when Adam sinned. The spirit was separated from... See, the practical essence of death is separation. 
You can define it all sorts of ways medically, but the practical essence of physical death is when the soul separates from the body. Well, when Adam sinned, the spirit was separated from God, and the old writers worded it this way, it fell into the soul <laughs> and needs to be regenerated. Okay. You see, the Bible actually explains this in Ephesians 4.18, that prior to salvation, the human spirit is alienated from the life of God. See, separation from life, the spirit is alienated, it's separated. See, that's, that's spiritual death. We're separated from the life of God. That's why Ephesians 2.1 explains to us that prior to salvation, in the unregenerated condition, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, not physically dead, obviously, that's not the case there in Ephesians 2.1, but dead in trespasses and sins. But again, many get the wrong idea. It affects theology. Ideas matter. It's not the idea of a corpse. It says dead in trespasses and sins. The guy's reveling in trespasses and sins. What it means is, prior to salvation, the human spirit is dead to God, but very much alive to sin. It is separated from God, but joined to what the Scripture calls indwelling sin. Romans 7 says twice, sin that dwells in us. Not sins, but that, that something in us that pulls us and, and urges us and influences us to commit sins. Oh, well that guy, uh, you know, we're still aware of that entity he still hangs around we'll talk about that in just a second but prior to salvation you're actually joined to that guy you're in a relationship with that guy you're shackled as it were to this indwelling sin this sin master that's always urging you uh, anti-god that is the fallen condition but there's hope there's the hope of regeneration that when you put your faith in Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again, conquering sin, death, and hell, and offers his life to you, that when you believe on him, actually trusting him to save you, then what happens is, among many other salvation truths, according to Galatians 3, 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit immerses you, he baptizes you, he places you into Christ. See, it's in the spirit realm. You are baptized into Jesus. And the moment that happens, according to Romans 6 and verse 3, you are placed into his death. Because if you're in him, you're in his history. If you're in his history, you're in his death. And Romans 6, 4, and 5 go on to say, and his resurrection. And what happens is, in the immaterial part of us, your core, the human spirit, that is joined to that old sin master, when you're placed into Jesus, the moment you believe on Jesus, you're placed into Jesus. And when that happens, the cross comes in like a knife and cuts through that bond between your core, your human spirit, and that old sin master. You are set free. It's what Romans 6.2 calls you died to sin. It's what Romans 6.7 describes as he who has died has been freed, liberated, set free from sin. In other words, that sin master that you used to be bound to, you got unbound. Now, he still hangs around in your soul and body levels. That's why we still have trouble. But you're not joined to him anymore. You died to sin. So now, instead of being dead to God and alive to sin, you're dead to sin. And you're alive to God. Instead of being separated from God, alienated from the life of God, and joined to indwelling sin, now you're separated from indwelling sin. And you're joined to God because 
what happens is, not only do you die with Christ, your human spirit is raised with Christ, the new man, so that the Holy Spirit of Jesus can move in. Ephesians 4.24 puts it this way, the new man which is created, key word, after God, key description, in righteousness and true holiness. You see, the new man, it says, is created. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls the new creation. It's not a renovation. It's a new creation. That human spirit dies with Christ, but it's raised with Christ. And in that resurrection, there is a creative act of God that takes place. This new creation, which is after God. What does that mean? That is described for us in 1 John 3.9 as God's seed. Literally, God's sperma. Do you know that when you're born again, something of God's nature is implanted into you? That's the regenerated human spirit. See, here's the hope of regeneration, that that human spirit is now resurrected. It's created after God in righteousness and true holiness. It's the nature of God. It's the DNA of God inserted into you. That's why you're called the child of God. See, created after God. You're in the family now. And not until that point. But when you believe on Jesus, this happens. The Holy Spirit generates divine life into your core. (laughs) The center of your being. Your spirit has been regenerated. And God's nature, which is loving and good and kind, is now in you. And that's the real you. That's who you are in Christ. That's why God calls believers in Jesus saints. Because his holy nature is inserted. And see, there had to be a part of you made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. You see, that part of us is holy. And thus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus moves in. And he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That's, that's actually amazing. Do you know that you're not only human? Once you're born again. So this excuse, well, you know, I blew it big time because I'm only human. (laughs) That doesn't hold. You're not only human. There's a part of you that is God's DNA. That's what it says in 1 John 3, 9. Wow. And that's where the Holy Spirit has moved in to lead and empower from that point, that beachhead in us. You see, there's been a radical change inside your spirit. That happens the moment you believe on Jesus. You're no longer dead to God. You're alive to God. You're no longer separated from God. You're joined to God. God's nature has been implanted, and God's spirit indwells that implanted nature. And he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. You're fused to Jesus, just like husband and wife, one flesh, regenerated spirit, Holy Spirit, one spirit. You're fused. To Jesus and you can't ever get unfused you can't ever get unborn the new man can't ever be put to death and you're joined to Jesus it's tremendous I remember in uh, college there was a girl in my class who uh, married a friend of mine after uh, school uh, days and and then later she uh, had a, a problem with her liver and she was in desperate need of a liver transplant so we were all praying I remember those prayer meetings And God opened the way, and she got the liver transplant, and she did well with it, and she's lived all these years and done well. Isn't that amazing, that an organ in your body, I mean, yours is going bad, and then 
somebody else is willing for theirs to be used when they die, and boom, they get it over to you, and they stick it in there, and it works. <laughs> it's incredible. My wife showed me a video a while back of a young lady, a bride, coming down the aisle. And the man who walked her down the aisle was not her father. Her father passed away, but his heart was transplanted into that man's body. So the man that walked her down the aisle was that man, but inside of him was her own father's heart. <laughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, friends, when you got born again, there, there, there's a transplant here going on. It's bigger than a transplant. God's nature is put into you. And it never dies. You see, this is the hope. <laughs> this is regeneration. This is astounding. So there's physical death and the hope of resurrection. There's spiritual death and the hope of regeneration. Now, the third aspect of this, threefold death and threefold hope, is what the Bible calls the second death. It's an interesting wording in the text of Scripture itself. And here we find the hope of eternal life. All right, so physical death is when the soul uh, separates from the body, when the material or uh, the immaterial part of man separates from the material part of man. Spiritual death is the idea that when we're born, our spirits are separated from God. That's what changes at salvation through regeneration. The second death is for those who never get regenerated. It is separation from God, who is life, forever. in the lake of fire. Now friends, hell has become such a misused word because it's constantly used as a curse word. Even the best of our leaders all across the land use hell all the time, but they're not talking about the theological hell. And I fear we've become desensitized to something that is very sobering. Friends, hell is real. People who die without Jesus spend eternity in a, a, a lake of fire that is totally separated from the life of God. It is so horrendous for those of us who preach, we, we just feel we're so inadequate. We can't, we, how do you describe this? But when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and reveals to us the truth, it, you, you, you at least catch some of the impact. Friends, the second death is real. And one day, if you don't know Jesus, this is what happens. Wow. We don't like that part. There's all sorts of good news, but friends, the good news comes off the back, uh, backdrop of the bad news. You see, separation from God, who is life forever in the lake of fire, this is what the Bible calls the second death. It's often described as eternal death, and that's why it's forever. But the Bible calls it the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, when God describes an event that will happen, it's called the great white throne judgment. It's for those who do not know Jesus. And uh, we're told that that judgment, that whosoever was not found written in the book of life, will be cast into the lake of fire. Then it says this is the second death. The lake of fire, forever separated from God, the second death. It's what we 
refer to with the word hell. Now, what's the hope here? (laughs) The hope is eternal life. In this same chapter of Revelation, chapter 20, that describes this awful, horrendous, heart-wrenching event when people literally will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Prior to that, in chapter 20, same chapter, verse 6, the scripture says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Remember, we talked about that resurrection. That first resurrection on such, the second death has no power. You see, even when the text says in that great white throne judgment passage, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire, the implication is whosoever's names are found written in the book of life will not be cast into the lake of fire. Is your name in that book? I personally believe that every human being's name starts in that book, and through unbelief it's blotted out, because we have the phrase blotted out in the Scripture seeming to imply that. You say, well, how can you be sure your name doesn't ever get blotted out? It's as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now friends, it says whosoever believes in Him Not just about Him. Yes, you need to believe about Him. But beyond that, you must believe in Him. In other words, it's not just an intellectual ascent. Okay, there was the Jesus. He came as the Son of God. He lived on earth a sinless life. He died for our sins, rose again. And, you know, He can save. No, it's depending on Him to save. It's beyond that intellectual understanding and that heartfelt, I agree, to that volition, that part of you called the chooser, your will, where you make a choice to depend on Him to actually save you. In other words, you're transferring your trust to Jesus alone to actually save you from sin and hell once and for all. You're actually trusting Him to do it. You're taking Him as your Savior. You see, He said, whosoever believes in Him, not Him plus you, not even Him plus church, not Him plus baptism, It's Him. It's Jesus. He's the Savior and He does all the saving. And just like if you straddle your weight half on one chair and half on another, it means you're mistrusting each chair as a single chair. See, a split trust reveals a mistrust. For those who say, oh, well, you know, I asked Jesus to save me, but you know, I think you've got to be good too in order to make it. Well, you're in trouble because that's a split trust, which reveals a mistrust in Christ alone. Why Christ alone? Because only... God meets the standard of God. The standard for heaven is God. The standard for heaven is perfection. And if you're depending half on you to get to heaven, you don't meet the standard. None of us do. We don't come close. That's why you need Jesus. You see, it's a matter of of not a split trust, but a trust in Jesus alone. In other words, you've got to sit down on the Jesus chair. You've got to make that choice to actually trust in Him, to actually save you. And friends, the moment you do that, you... You're saved. Your sins are forgiven. His righteousness is credited to your account. But in John 3.16, it says at that moment you have, not that you will have, but you have immediately everlasting life. How long is everlasting? Well, it's forever. Remember one little girl, she was four. She stayed after a a chapel. I'd preached the gospel. I said, if you mean business, you want to trust Christ, stay back. Everybody left in this little four-year-old state. (laughs) Man, she was sharp. 
And we got to the eternal life part of this. I said, how long is eternal? She said, forever. I love it. I said, well, can you have eternal life for a little while? She said, well, no. I said, why? She said, because it's forever. <laughs> you know what? She got it. And she put her faith in Jesus. Friends, see, eternal life, you can't have that which is eternal for a short period of time. You may short-circuit a few brains, but <laughs> you can't possess that which is eternal for a limited period of time. It's eternal. Do you know if you have eternal life, you're stuck with it? <laughs> and the reason is, it's not an it. Him. In 1 John 1, 2, Jesus is called that eternal life. <laughs> you see, when you believe on Jesus, you have eternal life. You have His life. You see, His nature is implanted into you. That's the previous truth regeneration. So that His own life can actually move in. His spirit, the eternal life Himself, moves in and joins your spirit to lead and empower you from that beachhead of His holy life. <laughs> that is New Testament Christianity. It's not just a matter of getting us to heaven. It's a matter of getting Jesus into us. His nature, his spirit. And he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. You see, you cannot ever be unfused to Jesus. That new man cannot ever die. That eternal life cannot ever leave. That life that you have is eternal. It is impossible to not have it. These are the words of the living God. The foundation for our faith regarding assurance. We have eternal life when we believe on Jesus. Friends, I want to ask you, have you made that choice? Do you have eternal life? What a glorious hope. Back in my earlier years of itinerant ministry, when I would go to New England, I would go to some of the old cemeteries because they're really old. And they actually have stones that have, you know, like stuff written on them, like besides the date. <laughs> uh, poems and sometimes inscriptions and descriptions and so forth. And sometimes it's very fascinating if it has survived time long enough for you to still be able to read it. I found a little poem on one stone. I've actually seen it two or three times now. So several have used it. It says, remember, friend, when passing by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. Well, I was reading in a book, and the book said, and I, I don't know if this is true. Sometimes I wonder when I read these stories in books. Ah, but the book says that somebody went by one of these stones and added two more lines. <clears throat> to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. It is humorous, but wow. The second death and the hope of eternal life. So, let's apply this. Two applications I want us to make. First of all, obviously, if you've never been saved, it is time to get saved. Have you believed in Jesus? You. See, nobody can do this for you. And yes, a little girl like that four-year-old, yes, they can actually have understanding. The Holy Spirit speaks to their heart and they put their faith in Jesus. Obviously, sometimes people, uh, 
well into life, then make the decision. The point is, you've got to make this. Have you believed in Jesus? You see, there's this threefold death, but there's this threefold hope. Physical death, yeah, that day is coming. Even people who are saved die physically, but those who are saved, these bodies will be resurrected to a glorified body. That's that first resurrection. The spiritual death part. We're born with our spirits separated from God, but when you believe on Jesus, your spirit is regenerated. The life of God, His nature is implanted into you. And then the second death and the hope of eternal life, not only is your nature regenerated with divine life, the Spirit of Jesus brings that eternal life of Jesus right from the throne right into you. And there is a a life stream right now. It's marvelous. Once you believe in Jesus. Friends, have you made that choice? Do you know Jesus? Are you born again? You see, if you've understood sin is the problem, hell is the consequence, and Christ alone is the answer, and you've made that simple choice to trust in Jesus to save you, He did! Even if you have some pretty bad days, if you have believed on Jesus to save you, God says you have eternal life. My question is, have you believed in Jesus? If not, today is the day. Today is the day. But what about those who have believed in Jesus... You have experienced the regeneration and the eternal life. None of us have yet experienced the physical resurrection, but we will. That part's future. But if you're saved, your spirit has been regenerated. The Holy Spirit has moved in. There is a life stream from the throne, and yet maybe it's not very manifest. You know, the Bible says in Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. That's there. The stream of Jesus' life is there right now. But it goes on in the end of the verse and says, by faith. In other words, you miss out. You, You... You don't benefit from the stream. Unbelief, not depending on that, blocks the manifest evidence that Jesus is in you, though he's in you. But faith, yielding to his leadership, yielding to his power, so that the Spirit imparts to you his life. See, that's what allows the stream of Jesus to be manifestly evident. Yes. As we come into this new year, maybe you're thinking, you know what, I, uh, I'm in need of that manifest evidence. <laughs> in other words, I'm in need of revival. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And if right now our experience is not abundant, then we're missing out on what's provided. Wow. And we need Revival. New year, new beginnings. Just wrote an article the other day called New Beginnings. I have a Bible that um, I was using back in 1991, study Bible. And in the back part of that Bible, there's a couple blank pages, as many Bibles have. And I have written on one page, at the top of the page, October 30th, 1991, Lord, I want a new beginning. It's the only thing written on that page. It is no accident that that very autumn season, my dad asked me to read the two-volume biography of Hudson Taylor. No accident that at that very season, God led me to do an inductive study of Galatians and Ephesians where the word grace exploded, not just for salvation, but for power in the Christian life. And God began to open my eyes. You need me not just to go to heaven. You need me to experience heaven on earth. And that led to a new beginning for sure. But you know, there's other times. You know, I've had many times where God 
has stirred me to seek him afresh and anew. I mean, of 1999, 2001, 2003, 2005. There's, there's those times, I'm sure you can think of times in your own life, where God revived you. Friend, are you in need of that today? What better the time? Here we are on the first couple of days of a new year to say, God, I want a new beginning. In this same book of Genesis, you read a few chapters later, and there's this guy named Jacob. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob. And uh, uh, Jacob, uh, uh, through his mother's direction, leaves uh, where he was there in that Canaan land, that promised land, and goes uh, to where his mother's relatives were to find a wife. And on his way, before he even gets there, early on he has one night where he, he sleeps at a place called Bethel. And he has a dream and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on a staircase. And that's when he wakes up and says, surely God is in this place. And he calls it Bethel. That's where he first met with God. There's every indication that's when he became a believer in God. And then 20 years later, after he has now a big family, gathered a lot of wealth, God stirs him and he comes back to Canaan. He first goes to Shechem. Things don't go too well there. And in Genesis 35, verse 1, God says to Jacob, God spoke to him, go up to Bethel. Go to that place where you first met with me. See, friend, if you're saved and you need revival, this, this is it. Go back to that time when, when you experienced me afresh and anew, and you knew that God was at work in your life. And so, in response to that, the very next verse, Genesis 35, verse 2, God, uh, excuse me, Jacob gathers his family together, his large family, his whole household, and he says three things to them. Put away the strange gods, which means they had them. And he said, be clean. That's an interesting phrase. Then he says, change your garments. Now, God had told them, Go to Bethel and build an altar so you can meet with me. But before Jacob ever talks about the altar, he says to his family, put away the strange gods, be clean, change your garments, and then we will rise. And then we will arise and go to Bethel and build the altar. Friends, you want an altar where you meet with God. That's the Old Testament imagery for meeting with God in New Testament sense. The Old Testament stories provide illustrations of the didactic teaching in the New Testament. Put away the strange gods. That's the same as walking in the light. Deal with the sin. Deal with that which is hindering your walk with God. Deal with that which is in the way. There's the obvious. If you're caving into the flesh and pandering to the flesh and, and yielding to your flesh and indulging the flesh and the sensuality and filth of this world, put it away. Get honest about it. But sometimes it's not that stuff. It's the resentments. It's the anger. It's the bitternesses. And just the, the, you, the, all of that's just under the surface and it just takes a trigger and you explode. Get honest about it. Maybe it's ambitions in your life that are not evil. But they are not God's will for your life and down deep you know it. See, it's a strange God. It's in the way. Put him away! In other words, in the New Testament sense, walk in the light. How do you do that? You get honest. You agree with the light. It's 1 John 1, 7 and 9. You call the dirt that the light reveals as dirt, dirt! Oh. Oh, Lord. Look at this mess I've made. Here I have all this provision. And look at this mess. 
Lord, I've been in this mess a long time. Sometimes it's been months. Sometimes it's been years. None of it's too hard for God. Get honest. Whether it's fleshly sins, whether it's soulish sins, whether it's ambitions of arrogance and pride that are not God's will for your life, just get honest. And I love this. His next thing was, after he said, put away the strange God, he said, be clean. That's very interesting uh, to study that. Uh, the Hebrew has, it's a language very different than the English language, but the, the, the form of the verb is the best way to describe this, indicates that this could either be purge yourself or present yourself for purification. But well, we can't clean ourselves up. <laughs> but when you walk in the light and you take those steps of confession where you get honest about whatever it is God tells you you need to get honest about, then the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to release us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ah, so present yourself for the cleansing. You just get honest with God and then God does the cleansing. There it is. He's the only one that can. But friends, He does. And though the sin may be heavy on our conscience, though the issues may burden us down, though we may think, you know, I remember those times when Jesus was so real to me. I was thinking about it just... This year, the Lord's really stirred me to seek Him again afresh and anew because I remember back in the follow-up of that 1991, Lord, I want a new beginning, when God began to open my eyes, I couldn't even talk about Jesus without crying. And then in 99, another time when God stirred me again afresh and anew, I mean, just all the reality, the love, the fire that God puts in a soul. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm kind of a dud now. Lord, I want another new beginning. <laughs> See, and as we get honest about the things that God tells us to get honest about, that's when the blood of Jesus comes in and cleans us up. Hallelujah. Every time, by the way. Well, then he said, and change your garments. So what's the parallel there? Well, when you get honest, the blood cleanses you, so you need to take the clean heart. <laughs> you need to take the cleansing. You need to take that when God cleans you up, He fills you with Him. Take, put on Jesus. It says Romans 13, uh, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus. See, He's the righteousness we need. A person. And that's how you get to righteous living. Put on Jesus. Well, Jacob's family did this. And then they went to Bethel. And he built an altar. And he met with God. And that is the beginning of the revived Jacob. And he still had a lot to grow, learn and a lot to grow. But things were different thereafter. As I was chewing on this this morning, sitting in a particular Amish rocking chair in our living room, I have to move in order to think. <laughs> I walk when I pray to keep me awake. I walk when I preach to keep you awake. <laughs> But at any rate, so I'm rocking this morning, you know, and I'm chewing on all this. <laughs> and behind the Christmas tree, I haven't taken it down yet, uh, there's this big wood uh, picture. It's got flowers, and it has a Bible verse on it. It's Romans 15:13. Now the God of hope. <laughs> See, we've been talking about hope. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy, and peace in believing. 
Friends, if you're not saved, you can believe on Jesus to save you, and He will. Believe Him. All right, if you need revival, you can believe in Jesus to revive you. And as was sung today, if you come just as I am, you come broken, He's the one who heals. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. Now friends, a couple of applications we noted here at the end of the message, so let's just talk about them. Our heads are bowed. Please stay with me. Please don't let your mind wander. I wonder who in this audience, maybe someone listening on live stream, but for those of you here in the auditorium, let me just ask, have you believed in Jesus? Do you know Him? Are you born again? Do you have this hope of the resurrection? This hope of regeneration? This hope of eternal life? Have you experienced Jesus as Savior. I wonder who would say, Preacher, you know, I know about Jesus, but I don't know that I've ever believed in Him. I need to trust in Him to actually save me, to regenerate me, to give me His eternal life right now. That is my need. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up long enough for me to see it? Our heads are bowed. I'm not going to point you out and make a scene. That's not what I'm doing. But I would like to know who you are. I'd like to pray for you. I wonder who would say, Preacher, that's my need. I have never believed in Jesus. I need to. I need that regeneration of my spirit with His divine nature. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the eternal life to move in. See, salvation is not just getting you to heaven. It's getting Jesus into you. I wonder who would say, Preacher, I, I need Jesus to move in to begin with. That is my need. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up long enough for me to see it? Now, friend, if you know Jesus, and I believe many of you do, do you need revival? Maybe there is a sin issue. Maybe it's just sheer dullness. Not so much some evil practice, but somehow that fervent love and reality of Jesus has really ebbed far away. And it's more monotony and motions and ritual than a daily adventure of relationship with the Almighty God. You need revival. You need to go back to that place where God met with you before, like Jacob, and therefore put away the strange gods. Get honest about anything that's in the way. Wrong ambitions, sin, whatever. Allow the blood to cleanse you. Be clean. Change your garments. Put on Jesus. Yield to His leadership and power in your life. And friends, that's when you will have a meeting with God. You can believe in Jesus. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing for revival. I wonder who in this audience, with their heads bowed, would say, Preacher, that is my need. And I, as we come into this new year of 2020, I want a new beginning. I want a fresh invasion of God in my life. I need revival. Please pray for me. Would you raise the hand? Yes, 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 yes. Amen, yes, yes. Amen, God bless you. Anyone else? Preacher, I should have raised my hand. I need revival, I know it. There's another, there's another, there's another. God bless you. Anyone else? God's speaking to me. All right, thank you. In a moment, I'm going to ask Andrew to play. When he does, if God's spoken to you, talk to God about what he's talking to you about. Put away the strange gods. Name those things to God. Allow the blood to cleanse you. And take Jesus as your righteousness. Far beyond salvation. Lord, I pray that as you speak to our hearts that we would yield to your convincing, convicting work.
Lord, that we'd get honest. That like Jacob, we would deal with what needs to be dealt with. That we might meet with you. And Lord, may we believe. We thank you for it. With their heads bowed, would you take some time to talk to the Lord? Stand our feet. If you have talked with God today, let me encourage you. Tell someone, especially somebody close to you, this is what God's doing. Friends, God has been working with me afresh and anew this year. There's no doubt about it, especially this last seven days. God wants us to be clothed with Him. So make sure you tell the one or the ones that God wants you to tell. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the God of salvation and the God of revival. That you are the God of life and the God of life again. And Lord, for those that are crying out for a new beginning, may they find that you as the God of hope fill them with all joy and peace and believing. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.